Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome everyone. I'm Vicki Vasilika, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP. And thanks for tuning in for this COVID-19 special edition episode. As we all know, COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges in the past year. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so that you can incorporate these best practices into your own as we all do our part in caring for our patients. Thanks. My job is today to talk about two things. Firstly, about the clinical trial designs that uh, that separate a traditional vaccine from a pandemic vaccine, such as the COVID-19 vaccine. And then I'm also going to talk about the, some of the safety work that's going into surveillance, as well as to assure our confidence in any kind of pandemic vaccine that would come out of the process that I'm about to describe. So this table here summarizes a typical clinical trial overview to approve a vaccine candidate. You start with phase one, which essentially assesses safety. This is done in a small group of adults, and it also establishes the extent of the immune response the vaccine might provoke in humans. And recognizing, and I'll say this a little again later on, that clinical trials generally come after a significant period of preclinical research to establish, obviously, a vaccine candidate. A lot of those uh, preclinical work is obviously done in animals. The phase two part of the trial then talks of not only re-examines the vaccine candidate's safety, it also looks at immunogenicity, it looks at uh, dosing schedules potentially, it also looks at the schedule for immunizations as well as how the vaccine might be delivered. And this uh, phase two trial is comprised of about a larger group of adults, generally about several hundred subjects. And there they do tend to be randomized and controlled, whereas compared to phase one, they are not. The phase three trial, obviously, is the one that many of you know. This is the big one that gets the vaccine final approval and licensure. Uh, Randomized clinical trials are involved, and they generally include a placebo group, although in some circumstances, an IRB may decide that a placebo group is not allowed because, for example, influenza vaccine, when we know that the vaccine has different benefits, in which case you might see some comparative studies done there as well. These clinical trials involve, especially with vaccines, now tens of thousands of people uh, that are randomized. And the large number of the scale of the number of people uh, involved in these clinical trials is generally to detect potential rare adverse events. And then after a vaccine gets uh, authorization or licensure to move forward, there is a phase four uh, clinical trials that are actually agreed upon between the FDA and the manufacturer of the vaccine. And these are conducted to ensure that the vaccine remains safe, remains effective, and also potentially to look at other uses that the vaccine might uh, might be considered for. So this is the one slide I have on the typical vaccine development process. I'm not going to go through it because I kind of went through it with the, with the clinical trials a bit. But again, just to say the time frame is about 10 to 20 years to bring a vaccine from development, uh, exploratory and preclinical, all the way down to actual vaccine manufacturing and into the arms of people. So it's a fairly long process. Uh, involving, as you can see here, the development, the regulatory review and approval, uh, the ACIP recommendation process, which tends to then lead to its use as well as payment policies, and then finally vaccine manufacturing. And on this side, you can see the average time it takes uh, for that typical vaccine development process. 
Our goal today is to take a look at the pandemic vaccine development process. And again, global collaboration is generally essential for this with a target timeframe of about 12 to 18 months. The development process tends to be compressed to about 12 months. Uh, regulatory review tends to take about eight months. An emergency use authorization, which is what you're hearing a lot about today, currently with the COVID-19 vaccine, is actually outside this process. The ACIP then allows use and payment policies, and then that takes about 14 days, generally faster. You'll see the COVID-19 vaccine is going to move really, really fast. Uh, and then vaccine manufacturing will continue to happen even as this process is moving forward. And I'll go into a little more detail on that soon. Just to remind everybody, as I break this process up, uh, the development of pandemic vaccine takes about up to 12 months, and it's an exquisite balance of speed, of safety, as well as efficacy. The clinical trials are generally there to make sure that there is safety and effectiveness, as I've said earlier. And where the difference applies in terms of the clinical trials for this vaccine pandemic development process, pandemic vaccine development process, is that a couple of things are done. So firstly, there is simultaneous phase two and phase three trials happening. So in other words, the phase two trials occur simultaneously as the phase three trials begin to happen as well. And I'll show you a little bit by using the Pfizer uh, clinical trial as an example. And additionally, uh, the clinical trial can be modified with agreement with the FDA uh, to use incoming data to change it as it goes forward. So for example, uh, and I'll use the Pfizer trial to explain this again, to example, to, to select a, a compatible, a better vaccine candidate, for example, can be some of those things. Other things can be, for example, including younger adults into a clinical trial. So those things happen rather than sequentially, they can happen simultaneously as the clinical trial is happening. And that is the reason why the development process of normally eight years can be very, very quickly compressed down uh, to a very rapid development process uh, without sacrificing safety and efficacy. The regulatory review and approval process doesn't really change in terms of timing. It definitely takes about eight, about eight to 12 months for all that clinical trial data to be reviewed by the FDA and the VERPAC, which is the advisory committee that guides the FDA on this. But to remember, emergency use authorizations, which is what you're hearing a lot about right now, they're not the same as product approvals. And generally, they're only used when there are no other adequate approved and alternative solutions available. And the fact that exists is that manufacturers will have to continue to seek regulatory approval for their vaccines that end up receiving an emergency use authorization. The, the process of this regulatory review is continuous. There is a there is rapid approval process that is done because of that continuous collaboration. And in fact, what happens then is that once a vaccine candidate uh, has a positive immune response, uh, what the, the FDA then begins to consider right as the trials are beginning to move forward, uh, what are the ways that it can be prioritized? The CDC will work on that as well with the ACIP so that the use will be considered first in high-risk populations, healthcare workers, elderly, and those with pre-existing conditions. And what is true for all vaccines, including vaccines that come out of the emergency use authorization, is that all federal agencies that are involved in the process, along with private partners, will monitor safety after the public begins using that vaccine. Coverage of vaccines in terms of payment will be established. As many of you already know, CPT codes for the two mRNA vaccines have already been released. Uh, this is so that, of course, the vaccines can be given and paid for uh, in both public and private sectors. And in generally, manufacturing can actually begin 
even as the clinical trials are continuing. And this does not mean that they're widespread necessarily manufacturing all the vaccines yet, but what it means is that they built the facilities, they converted the facilities. A lot of this is done at risk to the manufacturers. In other words, they make these facilities not really knowing what's going to come out of those clinical trials. So it's done at risk. But the idea is that to have the manufacturing capacity ready to go as soon as the EUA or a licensure is granted, the vaccine can then be coming out of the out of, out of the facilities at a rapid pace. This is just to show you the next two slides that there is actually harmonization for all the manufacturers. It's not like all the manufacturers are going off in multiple different directions to get to the approval licensure or the EUA phase of their vaccine uh, development process, right? So the FDA does issue a guidance. And as part of the guidance, there are actually conditions that minimally identify what the manufacturers have to uh, accomplish with regards to their clinical trials for the pandemic vaccine, in this case, the COVID-19 vaccine from the guidance you saw earlier. So for example, you see here, the primary endpoint for all the manufacturers has to be prevention of symptomatic COVID-19 disease of at least 50%, and that all the manufacturers manufacturing COVID-19 vaccine has to have a data safety monitoring board. So let's take a look at the, uh, the Pfizer clinical trial as an example. I'm not going to walk through this in great detail, but to kind of show you that Pfizer started with four vaccine candidates. And this is the idea of how the clinical trials have been compressed so that they can adapt as the data comes in. So you see on the left-hand side, you see with the phase one, for each of those four vaccine candidates, Pfizer did multiple things. The first thing they did was they started with a younger age group and they started with multiple doses with an internal review of safety along each for each dose. After each dose passed the safety review, it was then moved to an older age group, which is what you see on the right-hand side. And so you can see the track of how it goes. Then they tried a mid-dose. If that passed, it moved to the older age group. Then they did a high dose. And then if that passed, it moved to the, to the age, older age group. And then when, once those age groups were all completed, they then compiled all that data. And then they selected a couple of vaccine candidates to move into phase two and phase three. And in fact, it was during phase two and phase three that they eventually whittled it down based on the first 360 participants. So this is the simultaneous conduct of the phase two and phase three trials, right? So after the first 360 participants came out, they unblinded those and checked to see which of their candidate they advanced to was the best candidate for continuing. And from that, they advanced a single vaccine candidate onto the final large phase three trials. So you can see how this is a compression of that development process uh, so that we can continue to ensure safety and efficacy, but at the same time, accelerate the process. The highlights on this, uh, I've taken this entirely out of the clinical trial document, but the highlights are mine. And this is to kind of show you what they are looking for, right? So they assume, if they assume a true vaccine effective efficacy of 60%, and what they think is that they're going to need about 164 actual infections or cases to get a 90% power to conclude the true effectiveness rate, if it was over 30%. So that means they needed to enroll about 44,000 participants. And then what would happen then is that this is an accumulation of events. So once they get to that 164 cases, they can then unmask the clinical trial and see what the vaccine effectiveness truly was. And of course, if the attack rate of disease, which we, is what we saw, is much higher, then the case accrual will be much faster, which would then allow that primary endpoint to be evaluated much sooner. So that means they can unmask it earlier. And of course, because of the surge in cases, that's indeed what we saw. 
So these are the objectives. I'm not going to read through this, but you can kind of take a look at them. Just to kind of show you, again, it reiterates what I talked about in the broader scale. Phase one objectives, safety, tolerability, immune responses. Phase two, three, simultaneous primary objectives includes the selection of that, that single vaccine candidate and then looking for effective efficacy against confirmed COVID-19 disease uh, in persons who have no evidence of infection before they were vaccinated. Then there's another primary efficacy objective, which is to look at the efficacy of that candidate vaccine against confirmed disease in participants that did not have infection, but also did have evidence of infection before they were vaccinated. So those are the two primary efficacy objectives for the Pfizer. And this is the two, three primary safety objectives. Again, systemic, local reactions, adverse events, and basically the clinical trials will be used to define the safety profile of the candidate vaccine. And what Pfizer is going to do in the 6,000 participants they're going to then look at local reactions, systemic events, and adverse events. So once a vaccine receives emergency use authorization and it then goes out there, or licensure and it then goes out there, it doesn't just go into another world of no follow-up, right? So there's a lot of vaccine safety mechanisms in the United States that ensure that we remain protected with safe and effective vaccines. I'm not going to go through these slides one by one, but these slides are here to show you the reason why the vaccine safety system in the United States is the best in the world. So first, there is the licensure. There are the advisory committees that I kind of mentioned, including the ACIP, the NVAC, and the Advisory Commission on Childhood Vaccines. But then after all of that and the vaccine gets used, there are all these incredible surveillance mechanisms out there that identify either the canary in the coal mine, which means the signal, and then following the signal, they then take that signal to identify whether if an adverse event that was shown by the signal is truly causally related to the vaccination event. So that's really, really important. So these systems are here because they show us how safe vaccines that eventually get used in the United States are. Many of you know this. I'm not going to go through this one at a time. VAERS, which you know is the passive reporting system. That's the canary in the coal mine. Then we have the Vaccine Safety Data Link Project, which basically tries to establish causality from an identified adverse event. We have rapid cycle analysis that's part of the VSD project. We have the CISA centers. And then finally, we also have the Institute of Medicine that continues to take a look at vaccine safety. So we do know that we're going to have challenges with getting people to take up the vaccine. And there are many, many reasons. First of all, the one big reason is that we just don't do adults well. I mean, we have a lot of data that has shown us why we don't vaccinate our adults well. So we have patient-identified factors. For adult patients, vaccination tends to be a convenience factor. We do not have a very good well care system for our adults, unlike our pediatrics, where we do really, really well. And so as a result, a lot of patients don't seem to understand the need for immunizations in protecting their health. They are provider factors. Uh, because of the acute care system, a lot of other health issues compete with preventive services, which obviously include vaccination. And as we know, the provider recommendation to get vaccinated is one of the most important reasons why a patient ends up getting vaccinated. And so unfortunately with adults vaccination, there is a strong lack of provider recommendation. 
We are working hard to correct that and make that better. But your recommendation as a healthcare provider is the number one reason why a patient ends up getting vaccinated. And then we do have system factors. For pediatrics, we have mandatory school entry requirements, which therefore enforce the importance of immunizations. There are fewer requirements for vaccination of adults. There are some examples, for exceptions, for example. Uh, we look at, obviously, healthcare facilities as being one place where we have a lot of condition of employment requirements for flu vaccination, for example. And, of course, with, uh, with adult immunizations, we do not have those state regulations that I talked about in terms of mandatory entry to schools, but we also have different regulations as to who can vaccinate adults. Although with the pandemic, some of this leveling of the playing field has actually happened with regards to allowing different healthcare providers to vaccinate. And so we know that we don't do well with adults in terms of vaccinations. We're getting better, but let's look at specifically what that means in terms of COVID-19 vaccination and vaccine confidence. Because as I've shown you here, vaccine confidence among adults is not a frequently identified barrier. So when you started looking, when we started looking at confidence barriers that may limit demand for COVID-19 vaccine, it became clear that there are some concerns that, that reflect on this idea of vaccine hesitancy and vaccine confidence. So you have the potential benefits that have been identified through surveys on the left-hand side, and you have the potential concerns that have been identified about COVID-19 vaccine on the right-hand side. So you can see, and I'll use the next slide to kind of move this on, that a lot of people identified that they would vaccinate to protect themselves, they would vaccinate to protect their family and their community, they would vaccinate if they got a provider recommendation to get vaccinated. But those who said, I am not getting vaccinated, and that now that number is beginning to increase, are concerned about side effects. Things like, will the COVID-19 vaccine give me COVID-19? Will I get really bad side effects from COVID-19? So those are things that have been identified by these surveys as concerns by people who are not going to get vaccinated. And that number continues to creep up. And so we need to figure out how do we stop that. And of course, what's really interesting to me is that so many of these vaccine concerns with COVID-19 seem to overlap with similar concerns we hear about influenza vaccine. So I'm wondering if there's some kind of parallel playing over here on this, uh, on this fact. But because of this issue, the CDC has launched a new strategy. In fact, this is hot off the press. It's called the Vaccinate with Confidence Strategy. And while it is focused on COVID-19 vaccine, I think you can imagine that this strategy with all the interventions that will build can actually be used to improve confidence in all vaccinations, including vaccines that we do have confidence issues in adults, such as influenza. As I've noted, there's been a considerable decline in the COVID-19 vaccine acceptability in the past four years. And some of those concerns CDC has identified on the left, they are similar to the ones we just talked about. And they also identified that there are some things that make COVID-19 more acceptable to patients, including the four that are on the right. Some of these, again, I've already talked about. If the healthcare provider said it was safe, if there are no costs to the individuals, if it would help them get back to work, and if it was if convenient to them. And that convenience factor, again, we hear over and over again with adults and vaccinations in general. So this is their product. They're going to be advancing this over the next month or so. It's called Vaccinate with Confidence, and it's a strategy. There are three pillars, reinforce trust, empower healthcare providers, and then engage communities and individuals. 
So let's take a look at each of this quickly, right? So reinforce trust. The objective of this is to make sure that we can improve trust in the vaccine itself, the vaccinated, the person who's vaccinating, and the system that got the vaccine out to all of us. So this means sharing clear, accurate vaccine information and taking steps that will build that trust that I just talked about. So some of the tactics that they've identified in their project that you can see here, communications that are transparent, frequent updates, and proactively addressing misinformation. I think those are things that we've heard, that we see, that we need to work on. That second pillar, empower healthcare providers. Now, remembering again, the healthcare provider recommendation, your recommendation is the reason why people get vaccinated, right? So what the CDC wants to do with this project, this strategy is to promote confidence in healthcare personnel in their decision to get themselves vaccinated against COVID-19, but to recommend that vaccination after that to their patients. So their tactics include obviously, right, making sure that healthcare systems and personnel understand how this vaccine got developed, what we went through just now, and the benefits of COVID-19 vaccination, and to make sure that there's a culture of support to people getting vaccinated and recommending vaccination. And the final pillar, engaging communities. Again, this has to be sustainable, equitable, inclusive, because we do know, and COVID-19 has demonstrated our difference in access in terms of um, the racial minorities and disparate populations that we have. So we need to engage our communities. And what this means is working with the states, working with coalitions to get new partners to distribute the vaccine, to talk about vaccine uptake, how do we get the vaccine into arms, and to work with messengers that are trusted that they will go out there and say, I got my COVID-19 vaccine. I urge you to get your COVID-19 vaccine as well. So in summary, this is the CDC strategy. You're going to see this rolling out over the next month. Uh, it's a strategy to support you promoting the COVID-19 vaccines in a way that you are reassured that it is safe and that it's an effective vaccine, giving you the tools for you to communicate to your patients to do that, and also to reassure yourself that you are safe when you get the vaccine. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and be sure to check out our COVID-19 resource center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most up-to-date developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all you do. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.